Hello, and welcome to another episode of Setting the Tone, an ER retrospective. Today we'll be discussing Season 1, Episode 3, which is titled Going Home. It aired on Thursday, September 29th, 1994. And my name is Elizabeth, and with me today, as always, are Lauren. Hello. And Daniel. Hey. So, I want to jump in real quick and note whether you're first-time listening to us or returning back long-time listener of three episodes, we are going to be spoiling several things throughout the series, as this is a full series retrospective. We will have a focus on episode three, but there will be discussion on how that impacts a lot of long-term storylines. So, be prepared for that. Go watch all 15 seasons if you haven't yet, and then come back and give us a listen. We'll be here for you. On that note, I want to get into kind of painting a picture for us of what was going on as of September 29th, 1994. One of the headlines on the New York Times was Disney drops plans for history theme park in Virginia, which if you didn't know, that was going to be a thing. That didn't work out. That's insane. I've never heard about this, and I grew up in Virginia. Oh my god. Watch, okay, random YouTube shout out. Watch defunct land yeah i've heard of them they're great and he does a whole thing about this specific thing weird do you know and it's really good do you know where it was supposed to be i'm assuming like williamsburg or something i don't remember exactly interesting but, so that was one big thing was when it was the the disney decade and and they were trying to revitalize their image and expand they were looking at doing a liberty square thing but a full theme park so that's one thing. Shows kind of where Disney was at at the time. Around this time, the first phase of the O.J. Simpson murder trial jury selection ended with 304 people chosen. Oof. The number one movie is still Time Cop. And I'll Make Love to You is still our number one single. And I just looked it up. The theme park was due to was due to be put in in Haymarket, Virginia, which is about five miles from Manassas National Battlefield Park. Oh, so Northern Virginia. It's kind of like I do not know Virginia geography. It's kind of like the um, DC metro area ish. Like it's it's that a, makes sense. an odd place. I mean, yeah, it makes sense from a population standpoint. But I'm just struggling to figure out where the hell they would have found a space for a theme park up there. It's pretty congested as it is. But that's interesting. Yep. So that's what I got for us this week. And with that, do we want to dive into the episode? Absolutely. To start off with, the episode title is uh, "Going Home." Like I mentioned earlier. And that actually has a couple of illusions in this episode. First one that we're hit with is Carol getting back to the ER, finally, after now probably a couple months. Hathaway lives. And she's going back to work, which is awesome. She's going back to work with the world's just... What is the color on those scrubs? Like, it's... like Seashell pink. Yeah, like, I, <laughs> my wife and I were talking about... Or just it. the weirdest peach ever. It looks like she washed her white uniform with, like, red wine. Like it's yes, it's just very. It looks just stained. It doesn't look like an actual color that stands on its own. It's just. It's a very jarring and not very peaceful color to have your caretakers wearing. It's not very soothing to the eyes at all. Yeah, from my wife specifically, she was saying how nurse scrub colors are almost never flattering. They're always either some sort of ridiculous color like that that's like gross looking, or they're some sort of like really garish color, like some sort of like you know almost neon looking kind of shade she's like they're never the color you want them to be yeah and the first thing you really see too after that is you see her laying out her clothes on the bed and we fully established that she's moved back in with her mom for her recovery time um, which i imagine after that heavy of a suicide attempt would be pretty intense outpatient therapy perhaps even a partial inpatient program as well um, i've done things like that in the past probably need to have someone to hold you accountable and like sign over kind of um informal guardianship maybe perhaps i don't know 
Yeah. I've never had that serious of a, of a mental health crisis. Let's keep it that way. Yeah. I want to point out here, and this might have just been me, but the way she lays the clothes out on the bed and stares at them, it's it's kind of like they're haunting her and just that fear of going back and everything. You can just tell that she's both been waiting for this moment and she's also terrified. Yeah, yeah. And it gets, it becomes, you know, more so once we actually get her into the ER that she's definitely like, this is something that weighs heavily on her returning back to this place. And she's coping with it in a variety of ways, you know, like as we're going to see in a couple minutes, like primary, one of the primary ways is with humor. Like she's trying to like work through these feelings of coming back to this place and these people and it's just a lot of emotions going on yeah um and then moving from that right into county general we see for the third time in a row one of the doctors being woken up in that same ass room this time it's benton and it's who is the it's rosemary Clooney's the actress yes not related to George Clooney? Yes, it's his aunt. Oh, it's his aunt. It's the mother of, and I'm so sorry I forgot this actor's name already, the gentleman in episode one who had the cancer. Miguel Ferrer, yeah. Ferrero, which is George Clooney's cousin. It's his mother. Right. Hmm. So George Clooney's aunt. And then she wakes Benson up by singing a lovely tune, which will be her M.O. throughout this entire episode. It's, I just, I love her voice. She has a beautiful voice and I love the song she sings, however old, old timey they may be, if you want to call it that. I just think they're pleasant to listen to. It's very comforting. And she, you know, given the show tunes theme, she really steals the show on this episode. She is a highlight. And when we got to this episode, we were like, God, she's in episode three. She shows up that early. We were so excited. Yeah, there's so many things that like as we've just even watched these first three episodes again like it's been a couple years since I've done my last full rewatch of this series and I just forget just how quickly they throw like a lot of stuff that's very memorable like this woman at you yeah the timeline is is much more compressed especially in these early seasons the timeline is much more compressed than you remember and it really just speaks to how like spread out and like almost dragged out things get later on but it's nice when you see like this like for my money she's one of my favorite guest stars in the whole series and we're getting her in episode three like that's crazy yeah we're spoiled yeah it's so great to have her and i wish that there was a way that she could have almost been a series regular if possible just because she's so enjoyable to watch and as we see her throughout this episode she nails the alzheimer's performance like that childlike fear and wonder of everything that is around her in an early stage Alzheimer's patient or mid stage. I would argue that she's pretty mid stage yeah, at okay, this point because right. she's still obviously functional and up and moving around, but her mind is not really right. there. Okay, fair mid stage, but yeah, she she nails it. But um, going on as much as I want to just talk about Rosemary Clooney for this whole episode, we go we see Carol. She walks into the hallway. Carter is fighting with the vending machine, and she just walks up and just whaps the machine candy falls out and she just goes you got to show it who's boss and all of a sudden carter's like oh hey you were gone my first day and she was like oh it's almost my last and just very very abrupt straightforward joking with people like she's not gonna dance around this issue yeah carol is we have this written out carol is peak millennial humor with all of her suicide jokes yeah and i relate to that on a spiritual level (laughs) that's one of those things that i kind of touched on in the pilot episode is is how kind of ahead of the curve they were on a lot of stuff like I don't feel like this kind of humor would have been socially acceptable in 1994 and certainly not on like a a network drama like this. Like it just seems like it's so out of place and so out of the norm for the type of, I mean, you know, the the biggest shows in America at this point, you know, are 
like home improvement and shit like that. You know, like it's a bit happy, you know, like don't think about problems. Don't take anything, you know, like everything's fine all the time. And I don't know. It just seems like it's I, I like it. I mean, it, it, it appeals to me you know, as somebody of a different time and different generation, but it just seems kind of out of place for where we are in history. Actually, side note, I was talking to somebody about our podcast on Facebook and he said that the three of us really need to check out Saint Elsewhere because he says ER felt like a true spiritual successor to Saint Elsewhere in the tonality and the way that they address tough topics and like are ahead of the curve with things. I know two things about Saint Elsewhere. I know one, Mr. Feeney is in it, which I'm all yes. I'm all here for. And I know that it has one of the most frustrating series finales of any show ever. And that was something this gentleman mentioned was one of his biggest complaints about Saint Elsewhere was that as a fan of it, that that's the only thing that anybody knows about it now yeah but I, I'm, I'm down to check it out maybe that would be a good like you know bonus episode maybe once we could you know just take a dive into a random saint elsewhere episode highlight some parallels but yeah so shout out to gentleman on facebook whose name i forgot to write down i'm sorry but we did take your comments into consideration lesson learned for the future and we noticed that you know after carol jokes around with carter she kind of goes into this hallway on her way in into the main ER proper and she's staring into the room and you can see she starts to get nervous. You start to hear the heart monitors more clearly and she's having flashbacks between her experience in the ER and now and just you see her starting to get shaken up and everything and she takes a deep breath and then I noticed after we discussed the theme song last episode this one starts with a bang, not a crinkle for the theme. Yes, yes, I definitely made. And I think I'm going to start keeping like a tally on it, like which one see, you know, as we go along, see which ones we get more of because we had a twinkle for the last one and we definitely got the smash cut for this one. Like this was a, a jump you right into the action one. So I, I think I need to start keeping an official tally on this one. And speaking of her walking in and the, I guess, flashbacks, like did either of you find it strange that she's having flashbacks to stuff that she was unconscious for? I mean, I know it's kind of artistic license and, you know, she it's not necessarily an actually a flashback, but like, I don't know, it just kind of seemed odd to me that she'd be having flashbacks to things that she wasn't there for mentally. Yeah, I think the flashbacks was more meant for us, the audience, just in case we forgot over the last sure. week and a half that this is who this character is and sort of to show like you could reasonably argue, I think that she would know what she would be looking like on that gurney and her stake because she's probably seen other people in that state. Oh yeah, for sure. I have a parallel for this and this is a good time to bring this up. I have epilepsy. I have grand mal seizures. When I think about my traumatic seizures, I might not necessarily be having a flashback to what it looked like, but I know what I look like when I have one. So like I can envision sure. that and I can know how scary it must have been for the people around me even if I was unconscious. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. I'll take that. So, and it and it could be a way to help the audience visualize like this is exactly what she's thinking about when she's starting to panic. And then also going along with the opening credits, I actually noticed that in episode 2, with the first time they used these credits, the names, like the actor names did not line up with the video clips that they were playing. Now they do, and I'm pretty sure for the rest of the series. They, they do. Yeah, they do. Or for at least as long as for a lot for as long as they use this opening opening theme and video yeah, sequence. this is another like it's kind of almost fun and fascinating to kind of watch how they evolved the opening sequence because it seems to ha undergo a lot of subtle changes because while this one did 
sort of correct the issue of names and faces not going well together, you are still missing some of those kind of signature beats. Like they're in there, but they're out of order. Like Benton's punch isn't where it's supposed to be with the music. They use, I think, a door instead to try to like kind of make that same sort of connection. So they haven't quite refined it down to its like best self yet. So it's fun to kind of track that as we go through the episodes, how they're kind of, they're still working out the kinks even three episodes in. I just want to scream thank you because as we were watching this, I was like, that's not where Benton's punch should be. Yeah, there's all sorts of stuff that's kind of out of place. Like I know there's, I don't remember off the top of my head if it was in this one, but there's a very specific shot of Susan where she's like looking over, kind of turning her head as, I think it's post Benton's punch in the correct version. And it, it kind of is the last sweep before you hit the ER logo. And I didn't remember seeing that one in this one. I can't remember if they used it for her name or not. Um, but there's just little things like that mm. that just kind of like little breadcrumbs that get added in along the way. Like this one uh, in this episode, for example, um, there's a scene later on where Benton ducks out of the trauma room to look for Carter and he looks both ways like he's getting ready to cross the street. That's a staple of the intro. Like that is in the intro for years after this. Oh, yeah. You can pick out. Stuff. No, yeah. But okay. just these first few episodes, you're getting those little breadcrumbs added in. And it's so cool to watch that happen in real time. Yeah. I was going to say, you can watch, I don't know how long they keep adding them in for. Well, I imagine as they rotate in new characters, you can see the new different things. From there, we go back and we go into the actual episode. It starts with Benton wandering around with who shall be known for most of the episode as Madam X. Basically like a fun, basically like a different uh, alternative to Jane Doe. It's like a classier Jane Doe. Like, she's a woman of stature. <laughs> she deserves... She deserves Madam. Yes, she gets to be Madam X. Yes, just just yes. When we yeah. register for our wedding, I want to be registered as Madam X. <laughs> okay, sure. Why the fuck not? And then also, right after that, we have Doug and... Doug trying to look for Carol. And we get this lovely... Oops, sorry. I'm sorry. There was just one line I, I want to jump in before we forget it. And... Benton goes, you know, do you know whose patient this is? And he's walking past Timmy, I think it is. No, I think it was Lydia. Was it Lydia? Yeah. And Lydia goes, no, but I can name that tune. Yeah, I, I love, it's a it's a very brief interaction, and it's one that they never really go back to, which for, for good reason, like she's not going to be having surgery or anything, so there's really no reason for her to ever interact with Benton again. But the very brief interaction we get between her and Benton, they do a lot of play off each other. And it's, a lot of it's, Nonverbal, Like, it's just her kind of in her own little world and Benton with doing a lot of, like, hamming it up facially. Like, his annoyance with her is palpable. And they just work really well together. It would have been nice to get a little bit more of that as, as the episode went on, but I understand why they didn't. Yeah, Eric LaSalle definitely brings some fun to this one. Yeah, okay. And then from there, we go into this first exchange our first audio clip of the episode uh with with doug and mark and actually there's two things in this we have the little interaction between doug and mark and then also carol coming back and seeing a bunch of people at the clerk's desk so let's go into it mark have you seen carol you're almost done mr resnick this is the third time you've asked me this morning. The answer is still no. I just think we need to be a little sensitive here. First day back? Back. Yeah. Excuse me. I'm here to unload that new shipment of barbiturates. Hi. Hey. Oh. 
Oh, at least you didn't kill off your sense of humor. No, just a few brain cells. Hi. Hey, Jerry. <laughs> Jerry, Jerry, you're killing me. <laughs> hey, nothing you haven't tried already, huh? Yeah. Don't start. No, oh, please. I know. Don't start what? Uh, Dr. Ross asked us all to be a little sensitive today. So you got two things going on there. You have Doug, who's clearly just super anxious about seeing Carol again and just wants everything to be perfect. Oh, my God, she's going to be here soon. We have, we have to be all respectful. We can't mention a single damn thing about about her trying to kill herself. And then you, you have the total contrast with her openly joking about it and Jerry cracking jokes about it, too. Just like the, it's, it, it just feels like peak millennial humor. Like I said before, it just, it, it, I love it. It's like, it's like the concerned parents who want to whisper about their child going to therapy, and then the kid coming in and being like, "Hey, where's my Prozac?" <laughs> so strange. It's just so strange. Like, I mean, to, to for this period, it's strange. Like, it, like you said, it would not be out of place at all in a 2019 sense of humor, but. For 1994, to me, it just seems so out of place, but it works. Yeah. Oh, and for re- for reference in that clip, uh, Mr. Resnick, Mark's patient, is getting an enema. So he's having <laughs> fun with that. Yeah. He's real not happy that everybody keeps barging in to talk to Mark. And then we get a little bit more of Madam X. Benton brings her to the nurse, to the station, and is like, who does she belong to? She's not mine. I don't want to be walking around with this woman anymore. Yeah, and then Jerry is like, oh my god, thank god you found her. I couldn't find her. <laughs> and uh, says she was found nonverbal on the L at 4 a.m., which the L at 4 a.m. Not a place you want to be, even if you're with it. Yeah, it's kind of a trip. Having done it plenty of times in my life. Yep. I can't say I would recommend it for a multitude of reasons. <laughs> and after that little interaction, have Carol... Oop. Sorry, I just I want to point out that I, I'm sorry I keep doing this to you, but with that interaction, um, everybody seems to find a reason to not take accountability for this patient. Like, we never find out whose patient she actually is. Well, I get the impression, I guess, that she was never really assigned one. Like, because if Jerry's the only one who seems to know that who she is or, or even, you know, like, is even aware of her existence, he doesn't know who she is, but like, is even aware that she exists, you know, maybe she was brought in by the cops, but there was no, like medical reason to like rush her back so they just kind of like threw her in the waiting room and just left her there and she never she hadn't been called back yet when she wandered off I'm guessing is probably the case but she's yeah she's nobody's patient she's she's just kind of there maybe the real Madame X is the friends we made along the way (laughs) and then from there we go into one one of I think one of my favorite mark I think probably my favorite mark moment from this episode yeah uh, where he just shows some real leadership when in his first interaction with uh, Carol in this audio clip right here. He really sets the tone. So how's it going? Couldn't wait for this day to get here. Now I think I'll be glad when it's over. I feel like everyone's watching. Everyone is. But no one is looking for you to fail if that's what you're worried about. My shrink wanted me to consider working in a doctor's office instead of the ER. Uh Uh-huh. Dermatology. Yeah, I don't think so. Maybe this was too soon to dive back in. Come on. It's Monday. It'll be easy. A couple of kids who fake being sick to stay out of school. A few people who party too hard this weekend. And Arthur. Gosh, it is good to be back. All the familiar faces. (laughs) I absolutely love... I just love that whole 
interaction there. Like Mark, that feels like the character Mark that we get in like season like five and six. Once he's a full attending, he's actually like taking responsibility for the ER as a whole. He doesn't feel chief resident. He feels like an yeah. He's very fully formed in that interaction. Like it's it's a different. It's a, a stark contrast almost to the guy that you saw in the pilot who was, you know, he he certainly commands that presence by his job title, but he isn't really fully comfortable in that role yet from a leadership standpoint. And so, you know, he's still getting those pep talks from Morgan Stern and he's still kind of like trying to figure out what his place is within the ER as like its leader. It's just really really cool to see that glimpse of what he's going what he's gonna grow into and become as the show goes on now i'm curious to see if this growth stays consistent from here on out because from a story perspective we have a reason for it to have happened between the two episodes since it has been what two months at least yeah so we could theoretically say hey he's got his feet under him finally or it could have just been a fluke and they actually just nailed some really good writing yeah that's true yeah this is i guess in more ways than two was this is the payoff to the pilot like to me this makes more sense to follow the pilot than episode two did but maybe they felt like we needed like a little bit of a breather episode between the two because you know the first episode is so dense that maybe they felt like we needed a change of pace and kind of to breathe a little bit and let that kind of soak in before we follow up on all the threads from that because there's a various very well established setup and payoff to certainly um, Carol's situation and kind of Green's development out of it. Yeah, this one tonally felt a lot closer to the rest of the show than two. Yeah, did. this it, and it really makes two stand out as kind of a strange one in in hindsight. Like I liked two when I watched it, you know, I thought it was fine, but I going back and watching this episode it it really reminds you like no this can be so much better than what episode two gave us like this is where the show really shines and then next up we have carter has had madame x passed off to him and they just have a lovely lovely little friendship that develops over the course of this episode and one of the sweetest moments which we'll have an audio clip of later comes with carter and Madame X but I just it just seems he just seems so pure when he's dealing with her and this really seems like one of those growth episodes for Carter where even just between how he interacts with her at the beginning of the episode versus how he interacts with her at the end of the episode you can just see that growth even within this microcosm Mm -hmm. of an episode yeah he's becoming more comfortable so yeah going into the next thing we have our first couple big uh, traumas of the episode Uh, we have a gunshot wound come in and also a potential heart attack and Carol is thrown right back in the shit. Like, she just gets thrown head first, whether she wants to or not, just back into the chaos that is a trauma. Daniel, I don't know if you caught this, but as they're going about the getting the trauma set up, Mark just kind of leans over to Carol and just goes, welcome home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was really a nice, nice touch there. You know, there's so many with so many characters there's so many like smaller relationships that obviously as we go forward like Clooney kind of gets paired off with Hathaway and you know Green and Lewis spend a lot of time together Carter and Benton but I always love when we get these little brief glimpses into these you know kind of less developed relationships you know the the Green and the Hathaway and you know characters that don't spend as much time together as others I always like when we get little glimpses into that um, is this also For the part sure. where um, as she's literally running out to go be get into the trauma like that Clooney or Doug is trying to like talk to her as she's going out and it's like dude she's a little yep. busy man like she's yep <laughs> like give it just yeah give her some room 
she just gets thrown she just gets completely into the zone with these traumas she's just bouncing from one place to another from peter to mark to susan and just she's just fitting right back in just like she never left yeah and we're just reminded how indispensable of a character she is yeah exactly she knows her shit and yeah doug needs to get a clue he is so clueless in these episodes it's both really precious and also really off-putting like because it's george clooney you're like oh that's cute but if i was carol and i came back to this i'd be like oh my god this guy yeah can i please just do my job clooney is great doug is um (laughs) doug is a bit of a mess like doug is like i I want that on a (laughs) t-shirt clooney is great doug is a bit of a mess like he's just i mean like you said you feel bad saying it because clooney the guy seems decent but like Doug is actually kind of trash. Like Doug is like, you know, she's just coming back to work for the first time since a suicide attempt. And he's only really concerned about where they stand romantically. Like, Oh yeah. He, he's trash later in this episode. Oh, it's so God. It's so awful. All right. And then one of the traumas that they focus on is the heart attack. And this leads to sort of Susan's arc of this episode where She's not fully, she's not, again, she's one of those people who isn't fully formed quite yet in her confidence, and she's really just doesn't know fully, she's not very confident in her her decision making, like, when she makes it, she makes it, but getting there takes her a while, like, she's trying to figure out how to treat this guy that's having a heart attack, and it's like they mentioned later in the episode, time is heart muscle with these things, so you really need to, you know, make snap decisions as much as you can she decides to go with a drug therapy uh using heparin and tpa which are clot busting medications i know that a because of the show and b because my dad has problems with blood clots and he's had to have a few emergency treatments of heparin and it's been yeah it's not a very fun drug to have taken so she was that over getting the gentleman up to cardiology to get an angio angioplasty done angioplasty angiogram is the scan angioplasty is the procedure yeah is right. that, isn't that where they insert a catheter into the yeah. arteries like to break up physically break out. up the clots yep yep again watching this with a nurse like she's kind of my, my wife was kind of like backseat driving that whole procedure you know and everything and so she, i think i'm trying to remember this is getting ahead of a little bit when they get to the m&m i think she came down on the side of the angioplasty but you're right it's a very like snap decision and you're deciding between do i let this person bleed out or do i let this person stroke out like because i if i give them this the drug that she gives them the tpa then that's going to greatly increase the risk of if they start to bleed they're never going to stop. So she's really stuck between a rock and a hard place when it comes to that. There's no like easy decision there. You said your wife would, would have been in favor of angioplasty. Yeah. Well, she said, she said it's, they, they do a good job of dramatizing or, or showing you that the snap decision, like you could go either way with it. Both have their pros and their cons. One is obviously a more kind of convention or not conventional, but like, I guess, conservative aggressive. Yeah. Aggressive versus conservative, you know? And so, you know, if you're going to give the, the drug, the, which is what she ultimately ends up doing, then, you know, you need to like make that decision and stick with it. You know, if you're going to do the angioplasty, you need to send them up. Right. So like, like you said, time loss is brain loss in those situations. And, or, or, you know, in this case with a heart attack, you know, heart muscle tissue loss. So time is of the essence and they've just got to make these quick decisions with no time at all to really process it. 
Yeah, and with that, we know that, like, okay, his doctor's been paged, so not only is she wrestling between do I go angioplasty or TPA, but she's also like, okay, his doctor's going to be here, I have to be ready to discuss this with him. And it's such a good splicing from here between the rhythm of the two traumas. They just handle it really well. And then it goes into Dr. Kaysen's first appearance. God, what a fucking dick. Ugh. Oh, I hate him. He's Ana- such... Another secondary character I don't remember. How is this possible that I've forgotten this much of this season? He shows up in maybe a couple dozen episodes over the course of the series. I don't know when he actually stops appearing, but I know he has a heart attack at some point. Irony. Yeah, he has a heart attack at some point, and I think Lewis is responsible for saving him, which is kind of a, that turns into a funny little dynamic there too, but he's one of the longest running recurring characters in the show. His last appearance is in 2007. Mm, Jesus, so season 13. So he, he's in this show, yeah, so he's, he, but he's one of these side characters that would go away for so long that you would assume he was gone forever, and that there was just never any explanation given for why he left, because he would he would disappear sometimes for a season right. or more. And then all of a sudden they'd be like, oh, we need the cardiologist for some reason. Pull him back in. And he would just show up and he just looked older than the last well, time we and saw again, him. We get Susan getting talked over and disregarded and completely shit on for her options. And Kaysen's like, well, shit, now I got to go clean this mess up. Like he wanted yeah. to be angioplasty. He's like, well, you could have waited. I was on my way. And she's like, I didn't know that. He's such a prick. God, he's yeah. such a prick. The, going back to Kaysen, the guy, the actor, Sam Anderson, who's a total like character he's a total like oh hey it's that guy guy like he's in a ton of stuff like if you look at his uh imdb page i mean it goes all i think he's got 168 credits to his name it goes all the way back to 1978 was his first role Hmm. as an actor and he's got stuff all the way up till 2019 so he's still working today but one fun little nugget about him that i thought was really funny that i had forgotten to mention in the pilot episode are you are either of you aware of the other er the other er like the other tv series er mm-hmm. yes i am yes. but only because i listened to a sawbones episode where they were talking about medical tv and it came up also another good podcast to listen yeah. to if you like medical stuff yeah, there was a separate separate television series called ER. This one was called E. It was uh, the title was stylized E slash R, and it was a sitcom, and it was on Wait, CBS. Um, yep. It aired for, <laughs> yep, it aired for twenty two episodes between September of nineteen eighty four and February of nineteen eighty five. And one of its, I don't, I don't know if he was a guest star. He's only in one episode, but I don't know if he was a guest star or a recurring character or what, or planned to be a recurring character or what. But Sam Anderson, Dr. Kaysen, was on that show. Also, another member of the cast who crosses over with ER, one Mr. Doug Ross, George Mm. Clooney. He was also one of the cast members on the other ER. So technically, the pilot episode was his second stop on ER. Crazy. You're grounded. (laughs) You're fired again. So... After these traumas wrap up, they're coming out with their bloody scrubs on and Mark just leans over to Carol and goes, hey, you may have doubts about being back, but none of us do. Again, just showing that amazing characterization of where he's going, just, just as a great leader and just as a, just as a great motivator, too. Right. And I also said, you know, I realized part of why this episode feels so refreshing, and this is nothing against Mark. We've talked about how much we love him and appreciate him in this episode, but it's great because it's refreshing and it feels like the first episode where it doesn't feel super mark centric and it starts to build kind of that more mm-hmm. ensemble feel yeah they would sort of especially well i don't know 
Mark is, it's kind of a battle in the early to mid seasons between Mark and Carter for who is the like, quote unquote, main character. And definitely early in the early episodes, it's Mark for sure. And then I think we start to get more and more Carter as we go along. But the when the show is at its best is when it's kind of a rotating spot of who's the main character. Like, is this a Benton episode? Is this a Carter episode? Is this a Hathaway episode? Like when one of the other characters is kind of front and center, but we're touching on all of kind of the various plot lines. Yeah. And then after those traumas conclude, we have Dr. Div again, everyone's favorite asshole psychiatrist. He's actually good in this one, though. Okay, he's not a dick here. True. He is, yeah. He's he's as close to likable as yeah, he ever gets. Fair, fair enough. I actually had a soft spot for him in this episode. He handled this very well. Yeah, because he says he's been talking with Madame X, and he says half the time she screamed, half the other half she was in tears. That and... was that was Carter's response when asked about how oh, excuse me. how um, she was handling the psych eval questions, and Carter's like, I couldn't get an answer out of her. Half the time she screamed, the other half she was in tears. Like, just like I couldn't, could I don't know how to handle her. And she gives such a, a great performance where, you know, obviously the singing is kind of her like that's her thing she's a singer and so obviously that is all great but what i really appreciate most about her is where she does uh, what she does mm-hmm. non-verbally like when she's not talking when she's just sitting there and even something as simple as just kind of looking catatonic where she's just sort of staring off into space she's not really engaged in the conversation she's i don't know there's something so like powerful about the way she acts that like your attention is drawn to her even if she's not doing and, anything yeah she does the night she does the little nonverbal ticks and like the rocking and things like that where she just like she's clearly lost in her own world right but she does and the other thing that i like about it is that she does it without being hammy about it like she's not calling attention to herself by doing those like i feel like a lesser performer in that same spot would be really going over the top and like chewing the scenery and like wailing or like, you know, doing stuff to like really drive home what a great performance they're giving. And she's just so subtle about it. Like she's just really like very reserved and like it just, it's perfect. She strikes a perfect note. Yeah. And then for just a second, it sort of pops over to, we meet the Asian family in this episode where the wife, uh, the wife, it's yeah, yes. it's, a, it's a wife and her son who come in, and she clearly has been beaten. Wrecked. Yeah, had that absolute fuck beaten yeah. out of her. Like she, it's clearly <sighs> it's not the first time this happened because the kid is just so shy and reserved about everything. And we'll get back to that in just a second. But then it sort of pops right back over to yeah, to Div and Madame X, and we finally get some actual like information out of her. And this is where this is where when I said I said it felt more like mid stage Alzheimer's. Um, I I say that as having lived with someone. My grandmother had Alzheimer's, and I lived with her when she was diagnosed from about 2001 till about 2007, uh, when we finally couldn't take care of her anymore. Uh, rest in peace, Grandma. And this is the kind of the kind of stuff that Rosemary Clooney talks about here is the kind of stuff that my grandma would talk about towards the end when we weren't really able to care for her anymore and she sort of went off the deep end like rosemary Clooney, madame x she says she thinks she's in jail she thinks it's 1948 she thinks harry truman's the president she thinks she's a kid those are very very relatable 
things. She's like, oh, I know what Jeopardy is. Like, I can answer this as a Jeopardy question. So it's like those bits and pieces are still there, but she's missing context. Yeah, you, the right. flashbulb. And I, and I missed the, the mid-stage portion of this because my dad's early Alzheimer diagnosis, he declined so quickly to nonverbal. I didn't see a lot of this verbal communication stage, so I forget how shitty that is. But again, she nails this, and she's so excited to get these questions right. And the the um, the one that I think she does the best is one of the evaluation questions he asked is, if you found a sealed letter on the street with a stamp on it, what would you do? First off, I wondered what the purpose of this question was. Like, is it just to say, like, oh, of course I'd put it in a mailbox. Like, what is the quote-unquote right answer? But she just has no idea, and you can see her start to get very distressed and agitated, just like somebody with Alzheimer's when you start to feed them information that doesn't click with where their worldview is right now. And I just think the two of them play it very well. Yeah. I also appreciate, too, how she, like, not only is she so excited to answer the questions, but she's also so excited to answer them properly, like in the uh, Jeopardy format. Like, she corrects herself a couple times to make sure that she's saying who is, what is, before she, you know, starts the answer. And, yeah, I guess with that question, I'm assuming it's kind of like, you know, because he kind of, like, walks her up to that question. Like, it's he starts with something very simple and then gets progressively more complex. So I'm guessing it's, like, kind of a stimulus action type of question like you see an envelope on the street what are you supposed to do with that when you see something you know like it's a very like action reaction type of thing it's the only thing i can guess because it is sort of an odd question out of context like it's like i don't know like who finds sealed letters just sitting on the street like i don't know it's just a weird kind of i thought that one kind of stuck out as well but she just does such an amazing job here like this is she's such a force so we have this quick little pop over to morgan stern little baby William H. Macy. (laughs) No mustache. And he doesn't have a mustache in a lot of things. I know, but I just, when I think of him in this, I think of later seasons when he gets the mustache. Where does he have a mustache? Why do I think of him with a mustache? I don't know. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Like, he's such a strange character to me because, like, he has his little, like, heroic moments here and there, but... He's not a particularly impactful no. character. Like, he's just sort of there. Him and uh, who, another character we'll get to later in this season, Ving Rhames. Like, the two, like, biggest stars to have the least impactful side characters of any. Like, they're just kind of there. And you're just like, you have Ving Rhames and William H. Macy. Like, w- don't you think you ought to do something with either one of them? And they just never really Well, do. at least he's in Scrubs this time. So, like, he actually, like, looks like he's yeah. being a surgeon. He actually looks like he's doing the thing. Looks like a doctor. He's just so milk toast. Yes, yeah. Which is very not, very, very, which is very, very not toast. William H Macy. He's, I'm used to him being a bit more dynamic. Like shovel- I'm, I'm used to him shoveling well, shoveling, shoveling very, very well. well. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is egg salad. Oh, oh God, I love that movie. <sighs> uh, Mystery Men, 1999. If anyone's interested in what movie that's referencing, Ben Stiller, William H Macy, Hank Azaria, Janine Garofalo, Janine Garofalo, Kel Mitchell. And just a whole bunch of other... Paul Rubens. Random people. And it's amazing. Who's the guy who plays the villain? Um, Jeffrey yes. Rush. Please watch this movie, guys. If you haven't seen it, just... It's it's bizarre, but please watch it. Yeah. But he's talking with... Anyway, he's talking with Carol. And he's just very blunt. Like, oh, you tried to kill yourself. That shocked us. Like, we're glad... But we're glad you're here. We're this, glad. <laughs> this is very serious. We need to be worried about it. You need to be worried about it. We're glad you're back, but boy, that was scary. Like, <laughs> Yeah, he's like a dad who's like 
trying to talk to their kid who's dealing with you know depression and suicidal thoughts and stuff like that like he's the he's the trope of the uncomfortable dad like i i i know i'm supposed to be supportive here and i i want to be but i don't really know how so i'm just gonna like kind of pat you on the shoulder and tell you it's gonna be okay then it pops back over to carter div and madam x for a second and then div asks carter you know as carter's a medical student div wants to know like you know what do you think is going on and he lists all of this other completely unrelated medical stuff and div just says when you hear hooves think horses not zebras you know saying it's usually the obvious thing will be the right thing so in this case alzheimer's and then after that it goes back we revisit the little asian frank Hmm? isn't the kid's name frank is it yeah yeah Yeah. kid's name is so we don't keep calling him little asian kid fair enough So young Frank is over at the vending machine trying to get just a candy bar out and a candy bar. Oh wait, bar. it gets better. Oh yeah, all of the uh, that's the other thing I noticed in that scene. That's the only one that says not the actual brand name. Like you actually see a baby Ruth and a Butterfinger and a couple of other ones. Raisinets. Yeah, and raisinets in raisinets there. Is but the clear. one that's the one that's clearly a Crunch Bar just says candy. They took the time though to make it look like a Crunch Bar, but it just says candy like it it's the right font it's the right colors like everything they it, it, they took the effort to like actually make it look like a crunch bar but it doesn't say crunch bar it says candy and my wife and i we noticed that too and we were sitting there like watching like trying to figure out why they would have done that and the only thing we could come up with is that the crunch bar is the only it's the only one that's like directly in focus all the other ones are kind of off to the side a little bit so maybe they felt like they could get away with it but crunch was like directly in focus and so they maybe they felt like or maybe they were told they had to change it so that it wasn't like a copyright thing or something i don't know and also too that's the one that they pull out of the machine so he ends up handing it to frank afterwards so maybe there's something there too i don't know it's just it's it's really odd it'd be one thing if they were all fake names that were made to look real but it's the only one so it kind of just sticks out i feel like that's one of those things like when you filmed it in 1994 you weren't thinking of people watching in 1080p hd (laughs) right like, because I can imagine, see that like on a 1994 CRT 20, 240p or whatever TV not showing up very well. But, you know, in 2019, we're watching on Hulu on a 55 inch 4K TV. It's it's pretty it's pretty glaring. So but Mark basically is just having this conversation with this kid and telling him stuff like, you know, telling the truth isn't taking sides. It's just what happens. And this kid is clearly very uncomfortable. For reference, I think we missed this earlier. The kid's story, the mom doesn't speak English. And the kid translating for his mom keeps saying that she fell downstairs. And even though Mark pokes a lot of holes in that story right away, there's just like, no, she fell downstairs and gets very quiet. And it's just like, please help my mother. Yeah. Like yet another, yet another thing that my wife pointed out while we were watching this was that typically it's very frowned upon to have family members translate in situations like that for this specific reason because there could be you know it could be instead of the son it could have been easily been the husband there Mm -hmm. you know and she could have been trying to say you know in her native language you know like because she doesn't speak english she could have been trying to say he beat the shit out of me and he's going to translate whatever he wants the story to be you know so typically they try not to use family members to translate they will have contracted translators that they will bring in and it's like kind of a last resort sort of thing where if they can't find a translator who speaks their language then they'll use a family member um, as a last resort but typically they try to stay away from that just for situations like this Mm -hmm. and then from there we move into doug 
again getting the brush off from Carol for well actually let's just let's listen to this interaction because I really because I really like it and it's the first time we get introduced to John Tagliari. Hey, want lunch? Uh, As you know, the cafeteria has taken a real dive since you left. It's got all this low-fat health food junk. It's major dress. Doug, I can't really do this. Do what? Go to lunch? Look, I'm not asking you out. I'm not suggesting that we should see each other again. Hey, Carol, I'm sorry I'm late. I had an arthroscopy on this kid. Captain of the high school football team. This folks are a little worried about his college scholarship, but... Uh... Doug, you know John Taglieri? Hey, John. Hey, Doug, how's pediatrics? You must have a lot of worried parents, huh? All of them. So maybe we should go, huh? Yeah. But not the cafeteria. No burgers, no fries. Place is worthless. Hey, it was really good seeing you again. They just set him up to be, like, the perfect asshole. Even though he's really not. Yeah, there's nothing... That's the thing, like, he's... He's kind of like the almost like 80s movie hangover of like kind of the jock trope. Like he's like this big dude who like probably was a football player like or a basketball player. And just like he just comes off with that like smarmy jock sort of air about him. But if you actually listen to him, like he's actually perfectly nice. Like there's nothing you're like you're conditioned to hate him just because he's not Clooney and because he's, you know, kind of got that air about him. But there's nothing wrong with him. Like he's. He's fine. Yeah, he, he, and especially when you see him like moving forward through the series, he's not in for super long. I think maybe through the end of the season, if that. He really does have Carol's best interests in mind, and really does genuinely love her and genuinely wants to take care of her. And I think that that's really not the vibe you get from this introduction to him. I don't think so. I think it's completely like as far as his interaction with Carol. I was I was more thinking like just how he sort of like brushed off Doug in a way. I think that's actually really nuanced. Like it speaks I mean it speaks well of him as a character cuz she mentions that he was with her when she went through her suicide attempt. And so if we're led to believe that they have that much like this isn't a new relationship they've got that much history already at least eight weeks eight weeks worth then it stands to reason that she's probably told him about some of you know her relationship with doug and so he's probably you know doesn't have a real favorable opinion of doug but he's not an asshole to him right and i think you know he's kind of following carol's body language carol doesn't look real warm or receptive to doug right now either she she's clearly doing avoidance tactics like oh you know uh, we really don't i don't want to talk about this and so tag comes in and sees is my lady's ex giving her trouble yeah i don't think he's overtly a dick about it either yeah i'm not saying he's like overly like fuck you doug i'm just saying just like the sort of vibe he's given off but you know agree to disagree jock vibe there you go thank you that's a very good word for it so so what daniel was saying we're conditioned to find something to dislike about him in the beginning yeah as a nerd i'm conditioned to hate jocks (laughs) (laughs) so from there we we are on our way to the roof we have carter and benton ben's basically giving him the rundown on all of your your little safety tips your little do's and don'ts when you're up on the helicopter pad like avoid the rear blade Uh, (laughs) might might that be foreshadowing i you don't and something and he also says something to tune like you don't want to fall off i'm like hmm you know there's 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 something (laughs) there maybe I also have to roll my eyes at some of the, like, slang they use. Like, he calls them chopper jockeys. I feel like no one calls them chopper jockeys. Except like, Benton. I feel like that's purely a Benton- Bentonism that he's trying to get over with the rest of the staff, and no one is listening. Yeah, but it is the same helicopter pad as episode episode two, so yay, a little continuity, at least when, when you're talking about Chicago, even if 
we still have no fucking clue where it is. I know it's off Jefferson. We're That's trying so hard. Yeah. <laughs> that was also a really gnarly looking uh, star, uh, storm cloud that was up there. Like, I was like, man, they're flying in the helicopter and this shit. Like, it was like, yeah. it looked like a hurricane coming in. Yeah, they could have been, they could have been coming from, well, it says they were coming from Navy Pier. Yeah. It could have been there. just some lake effect weather. Yeah. So it's not really super far away from, from that helicopter pad. You know, it's maybe like three, four miles at the most depending on how far south southwest that is. For reference, Navy Pier is pretty much like if you go, like you see the Sears Tower in the background, if you go straight east towards the lake, so straight to the right there, and then a little bit north, so maybe like half a mile north once you hit the lake, then you run to right, run right into Navy Pier. So not that far away. It's not like they're coming from like Indiana or the suburbs or something like that. But yeah, yeah. so it's a um, uh, an accident that happened at Navy Pier. This girl was jet skiing. And with her boyfriend, the boyfriend tried to outrun a 20-foot whaler. I feel like that's the type of boat. I don't know. Yeah. But I don't know boats. I'm glad someone else asked because I was like, I don't know what the... I was like, is that a job or is that a I boat? I think it's a big boat. But yeah. So yeah, there was a little little pop in there with where their... Uh, William H. Macy comes up to Mark and Susan and says, Hey, we're going to have M&M on your heart attack case, Susan. Um, which stands for morbidity, morbidity and mortality. It says it's an excellent teaching case. Um, and then we go back right back to the helicopter pad. Then we get all the information. And Carter sucks at taking histories, is, <laughs> is what we learn from this. Well, that and I also noticed that they take the stairs consistently with the helicopter pad, and in later seasons they use an elevator. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the elevator becomes much more prevalent later on. Yeah, and comes kind of a focal point in <laughs> in some of the later some of the later seasons. Yep. So we have a quick interstitial. We go to Doug with this child patient that he has and the kid's dad. This kid's been feverish and lethargic and Doug's like, Oh, we you know, all of his stuff's coming back normal. We've got to do a lumbar puncture. Spinal tap for people not in the know. And the dad's like, lumbar puncture. And he's like this six foot hefty black guy. And he just faints. Just hits the floor. <laughs> Big tree fall hard. Like he went down face first. Like, whew, I hope they had a nice soft crash pad for him to land on because that. Yeah, whew. they take care of him. But then we go back and we get in with Carter and Benton and Mark, I believe, is asking like, okay, what's what's going on with this this girl? What's what do we need to know? And Carter starts trying to give the information and he just whiffs it, completely fucks it up. Benton has to take over and Benton's like, go ahead, go on. We've got this. And Carter's just left outside the trauma room looking absolutely dejected and discouraged and feeling really shitty about himself. He disappointed older brother. Yeah, which he'll get better at that, obviously, as we as we go on. And then we have our we have our hey, it's that person. Our for... second hey, it's that person. But the only one that yes. I recognized. Yes. Yes, Anne Haney. Yes, who played such roles as the social worker from Mrs. Doubtfire and also Greta in Liar Liar, uh, some beautiful '90s films. Actually, maybe not the first one, but... I love Mrs. Doubtfire. I know we have reasons to have differing mm. opinions there. You very much so, but... Mm. I, I, I like I like Mrs. Doubtfire. I haven't watched it in a long time, yeah. so I don't know you know how well some of the stuff is aged. But Anne Haney, she's another... She's a perfect example of a, oh, hey, it's that guy, or oh, hey, it's that lady, that 
she's in a ton of stuff and she doesn't always get big roles, but she always does a good job. Mm-hmm. Like she's always one of the best parts about whatever she's in. Yeah. And in this, and in her little role here, she is plays an older woman with uh, leukemia. Uh, she knows about it, but she doesn't really want to bother necessarily with uh, really aggressive treatments. So she cut herself with a knife in the kitchen and just wants, she all she wants is to get her stitches. Like she doesn't want any other anything else no transfusion no medication yeah like susan recommends a blood transfusion to her because she's like very very anemic and susan's pretty sure that's she actually probably fainted a little bit and that's how she wound up cutting her arm but Anne haney's character is just not having it at all and then we move from there into probably my favorite interaction in this entire episode uh is with carter and madame x and is when he find is when he Carter finally gets gets her to like actually like open up and to actually like be a little warm with him. And then we have this audio clip. Just ah, Rosemary Clooney's so good. You know, when I think of all the great ones, Ella Fitzgerald is probably my favorite. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And the music, there's nothing like that music today. No, there isn't. No. No. Do you want to sing? Life begins and spirits rise And they become memories that vaporize And the vapor becomes the dreams we devise And while we are dreaming Time flies, and while we are dreaming, time flies. Mm. Right in the feels. The cry singing. Yeah, it's just, Carter's clearly talking out of his ass about, he has hardly any idea what the hell he's talking about with music, but even just those little things get her to just open up just a little bit just to make her feel a little bit more comfortable in this clearly stressful situation where she's already crying at the beginning of that clip it shows that he's really like trying and like it's the thing that keeps getting him in trouble with benton too is that he's trying to empathize and you know work with his patients on a human level not trying to just see them as patients who just you know come through treat them and treat them like he's just he's trying to connect with patients on a human level that you already have seen a growth arc with him start from where he was in the first episode or I'm you know blanking on the specific interactions but whether it was episode one or episode two but you know there, there were a lot of interactions in those first ones where he's clearly very nervous and he's clearly like uncomfortable being in that kind of 
bedside situation. And here we're seeing that he's, you know, he's really trying, he's making an effort to make his patient feel comfortable and, you know, try and ease her pain a little bit. And it just, he's doing such a good job. Like he's, he's so great with her. Yeah. And then we hard pivot like right into Liz is back. Yeah. We actually learned her name this, no, this fucking time. We... Did we learn her name last time? She still, I think she told it last time because she doesn't say it to Jerry this time. Um, Carter agrees. So like, oh, hey, Liz, or something like that. But yeah. I know her name because of IMDb. Okay. Well, I think she, this is the first time we actually hear her name. Fair. Her, hear her name. Is like, this episode. Because she gives Jerry some Greek, Greek god. Yeah, Greek mythology fake name. And just after she says, quite simply, my breasts hurt. Dr. Carter, please. <laughs> like, yeah. I just, I, I, I go back to our earlier conversations from episode two. What is the point of her? I, I think I figured out how to phrase it, and I don't remember if I said it last episode, but I think the reason that I have a problem with her character was if it was a man saying and doing these things, he'd already be arrested. Yeah. And... Like, if it was a man waiting for a female doctor in her car. Yeah. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. we touched on that last episode a little bit, but... she's That she's predatory, right. I think was the word we used. Like, she's... Yeah, she, and she's clearly zeroed in on Carter because he's the youngest and because he's the most, like, impressionable. Like, she can get one over on him. And because he can't stop thinking about his penis. That, too. <laughs> yeah. They When they go into the... What is it? The x-ray room or whatever? <laughs> like, I, I don't know what's a worse look for Carter. It's that he's fraternizing with a patient or those suspenders that he's wearing. Like, I'm not sure I love which the suspenders. Of the two. Oh, God. He looks like such a fucking, like, Michael Douglas in Wall Street asshole. Like, he looks like just such a chud. Like, I just... Ugh. I don't like the suspenders. I love but... the suspenders. Yeah. But in between Liz and Carter getting freaky in the radiology room and... And her coming in, our favorite storekeeper, Ivan, is back. And while he's bitching and moaning on the gurney for being shot in the leg, he shouts, maybe I should buy a gun. Never wanted one around, but what am I supposed to do? Yeah, I get shot for the second time in two episodes again. Mm. Just like, dude just wants to run a liquor store. Yeah, he's just, uh, like... They've got this arc building with these side characters. That's what I was kind of touching on last episode was like they didn't do as much of that as the series went forward. Like they wouldn't, I don't think, have spent the time to flesh out a side character's little side story like this um, as they do here. But yeah, this time he's even he's even more annoyed because obviously this getting shot in the leg is a whole different animal than getting shot in the arm or in the shoulder area. Yeah, but that's really all you kind of see of him this time around so just a little interlude um and then liz and carter get freaky my favorite is that the radiologist interrupts them and i was looking for his name because i have it in my previous notes and i can't remember his dear name but my favorite radiologist comes in and just is like well you know what they say in med school s1 s2 s3 s4 keep your pelvis off the floor (laughs) like he's such a gross creep and i love him and then moving right into we just sort of have Madame X singing in the background, same song while Susan is back with our "Hey, it's that lady." Mrs. Guess, Packer. Yeah, Mrs. Packer is her name. Thank you. While Susan's just trying to convince her to stay, and we actually, we actually, Miss Packer actually can, gives us gives us Madame X's actual name or actual character name as Mary Cavanaugh because Mrs. Packer saw her in 1948 on her honeymoon with her husband, which which is a very sweet tie-in. Yeah, just a very sweet little 
callback, but just you can see the reverence that that Miss Packer has for Miss Cavanaugh, uh, Madame Max. Um, and she's like, "Well, it's not every day you get to hear Mary Cavanaugh sing." Yeah, and she she's just sort of like the oldest old soul that I've ever seen. Like Miss Packer. Yeah, Miss Packer. I'm sorry, uh, referencing her, but she just keeps she just keeps going on like just every day is a gift. Like and. She has a little bit. She has a little bit of this with Carol later, which we'll go into. But she's just she's very determined to make the last of her time before her leukemia uh, eventually kills her. If she were in any other episode besides this one, she would be the one we would be gushing over. Yeah. Like she would be the one that we would be given all the praise that we've been given to Rosemary Clooney. Like it's only because she has this like absolute mammoth performance happening over there in the corner that she kind of takes a back seat to that. But on any other episode, she would have been like, "Oh my god, this is like she does such a great job." Yeah. Um and then she as as she's walking out sort of defiantly, she faints and Carol and Susan are just like, oh my god, please, like, obviously, as as you would react to an older woman fainting and falling into a gurney. Then after that, we we have another little interaction with, with the wife and child Asian family. Hale says the line, I don't think I've ever seen such an old little boy, because that boy, I think he's another standout of the episode, just how he portrays broken really well. Mm-hmm. Just quiet defeated yeah like just broken child yeah he's he's another one i looked him up on imdb assuming that like he was going to be this prolific you know character actor who's done a a million things after this because he was such a good actor here like it only makes sense this is the only thing he ever did really only only acting role he ever had so he had one shot he did real well (laughs) yeah right yeah so you got that and then it feels like they sort of like skip over that whole storyline except for like the last little bit in the end which we'll get back to here in just a minute we get to the m&m we get to the m&m which they do this a lot differently in later seasons this one it just feels like they set up like a bunch of like desks in like a classroom and just set them in a circle and it feels a lot more like an interrogation with the lighting versus like the other ones are more of like in like a traditional like you would see like a college classroom with like the more raised seats and almost but this one just feels very claustrophobic yeah it's the lighting is what drives it home like you've got the the light kind of spotlighted over each desk which like spatially doesn't really make sense for the room because the desks are kind of scattered so i'm just imagining what the lights look like in the ceiling it's very like (laughs) haphazardly placed can lights like very poor job by the electrician there but yeah the the m&m is interesting like it's a setting that they went back to here and there but i don't feel like they don't go back to it as much as you would expect because it is a teaching hospital but so you would think that that'd be something that you would see again and again and you know it comes up a handful of times but it's not really like a a setting that they seemed like they were really enamored with from the writing standpoint like they didn't feel like they had a lot for it because they just don't go back to it as much as you would expect yeah but ultimately everyone sides with Kaysen including Mark who pops in to Susan assumes is coming to her defense which really royally pisses Susan off afterwards and she just assumes her friend would stick up for her well, especially because earlier in the episode she says, I'm going to need you in there. Yeah, but ultimately it's you find out that the patient did have a good outcome and that Kaysen made it worse by trying to do angioplasty because as soon as he cut into the patient, he bled out like a stuck pig, essentially, and he says it made a mess all over the cath, all over the cath lab where they do that procedure. Because the guy had blood thinners. Yeah, so and he was ultimately okay without the angioplasty and because of the blood thinners, so William H. Macy kind of put... Case in, in his place a little bit 
I didn't grab necessarily the whole audio because the whole audio is like almost two, two and a half minutes long and just Wait. a lot of medical jargon. And a lot of weighty silences. Yeah. But then we get to the nurse's station and Doug is again invading Carol's personal space and being like, hey, can we get coffee? Can we talk? Like, dude, she already told you politely once, like, no, I don't think this is a good idea. Like, I'm busy. Go away. Right. She's, like, she's saying everything just, but fuck off. He just can't take a hint. From there, we go to Ms. Packer and Carol. Carol being the nurse that had been helping Susan with her. Ms. Packer is getting a part of a blood transfusion. Um, and they're just sort of having this lovely conversation just about mortality. And she and Ms. Packer says the line that really stuck out to me. She says, I'm not going to die today. I'm going to a christening. Like, she's talking about, like, she doesn't know when she's going to die from the leukemia, but she knows when she's not going to die. Which the show seems like it's trying to draw the parallel between that and sort of how you feel living with suicidal depression. And I can tell you, as as I've previously mentioned in the series, as someone who does live with suicidal depression, there's a lot there that I can relate to on that level. Like, I have an idea, like as someone who lives with suicidal depression, I have an idea of when I wake up, okay, I feel okay. It's not going to be today. Or some days I wake up and I'm just not having life at all. And I'm like, okay, it could be today. Obviously, I'm still here, so it never has been today. Thank you. But that's sort of the feeling that I feel like she's trying to convey. And that's I think that's what's trying to hit Carol. Yeah. And all I can really add, again, as somebody who doesn't, has never dealt with that, thankfully. You know, the only experience I have to draw off that is having family members who have gone through that. And I've heard it described to me in similar ways. Like, that it's, you know, off the top, like, there's also, there's so many different, like, varieties of, like, everybody's experience with it is a little bit different. But you know when you get up, you know what a good day looks like and you know what a bad day looks like. And I think, I, I, it's so, like, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's... They are trying to draw that parallel between Mrs. Packer and, and Carol. And, and I think that going back to what I was saying earlier about that actress's performance, like she drives it home so well, like her like overflowing optimism in the face of this like death sentence, essentially, that she's just kind of accepted and made her peace with. She is kind of this like hopeful f- symbol for Carol. Yeah. Showing someone who's trying to make the, the most of her life. Exactly. With what little she has left. And to anyone out there struggling with similar struggles, we're glad you're still here. Yeah, so from there we wrap up the Asian family storyline now that the the father has come to pick up the mother and child. And Dr. Green is trying so hard to get this kid and his mother help. He is like, has your father hit you? Has your father hit your mother? And then the social worker asks. But the hitch is... They can't get help unless he asks for it. And why they would be having this conversation right in front of the abuser who speaks English, I do yeah. not understand. And I feel just, like that's breaking some sort of... I mean, Green is, like, trying to get this kid killed. Like, it's... Just, like, as we were watching it, I'm just like, oh my god. Like, I understand where his motivation is coming from. You don't want these people to go back into this abusive situation but at the same time like wouldn't it be better to just kind of let them go off and still try to work behind the scenes with social services to get remove them from the home rather than having this out in front of the father letting him know that look they've ratted you out once like and now i better go home and beat the fuck out of them and finish them off so that they don't rat me out in the future like i'm just don't do that like just 
you're yeah. you're putting them in more danger by trying to go on your crusade here. Yeah, I feel like the whole storyline is a little underdeveloped and just a little sort of throwaway. It's very much an afterthought in this episode. Yeah. Like it's it, it's a it's an episode that deserves, or I mean, it's a storyline that deserves more focus, and I think would do better as a, a main or a secondary storyline in a, a different episode. Because in this one, it's just buried under the like mountain of of stuff that we've got going on with everyone else. Yeah, I would like to note that in the background of this episode, at this point, Lizzie scream from the other side of the room: "The system doesn't work." <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't. Uh, and that's another sucks. very much recurring theme that's played out a lot better with a lot better storylines than this one later on. But after that, we get the wrap up to Rosemary Clooney's mm. storyline, which is the second of the two meanings of going home in this episode because her granddaughter's coming to pick her up and has and she and Rosemary Clooney says she is she's going home. Oh, my daughter! My daughter's here. Have you met my daughter? And sort of repeats herself as a typical Alzheimer's patient at that point would. And then she says, can you come? She asks Carter, because Carter's walking her to the elevator to meet her granddaughter. Yeah, and they just have a very, very sweet interaction, and she reaches out and hugs Carter and just says, love you, love you, love you. And then they launch into the song that she was serenading Benton with in the morning. Yeah, she and her granddaughter burst out into song in the elevator, and her storyline closes with them arms out as the elevator shuts, belting a long final note, and then Carter laughing to himself. And it's beautiful. It's so, so beautiful. She was nominated for Outstanding Guest Actress in a Drama Series that year. She did not win, though, unfortunately. She's beaten by Shirley Knight from... Mm. Uh, for a guest appearance on NYPD Blue. Sure. I've never never seen a frame of that show, so I couldn't tell you if it was justified or not. But also, I did find it interesting. Also nominated that year in the same category was somebody else that we're going to be seeing uh, not as a guest, but as a more, not a not a main cast person, but a recurring character um, pretty soon, uh, CCH Pounder. She's going to be popping up, I think, before the end of season one. It's certainly in the early seasons, but um, she's Dr. Hicks the um uh, chief of surgery i think yeah she's official a title person. i don't know i don't yeah. know her exact role she tortures benton which is my favorite part about her so sh- she shows up later i think this season but she was also nominated in the same category with rosemary clooney so nice i would like to point out that this is a beautiful cut that happens right here it goes from rosemary clooney singing we're gonna fall in love to Doug finally gets his coffee on the back of an ambulance with Carol. Yeah. And then we get this final clip of the uh, final clip that we pulled out of the episode of this interaction between Doug and Carol. Hey. Thanks. Good first day? Yeah, so far. That's good. Glad. Listen, I was hoping that, um, that, I mean, I know that you're seeing Taglieri. I was thinking that maybe you and I could see each other again. If I'd known you'd find suicide such a turn on, I would have tried it when we were together. Well, I'm serious. No, you're not. You're standing there like a puppy with its tail between its legs because you feel guilty. No, I don't. I, mean, I do, but that's not what this is about. Yes, it is. You think you had something to do with my swallowing a whole bunch of pills. Well, you didn't. <laughs> there were actually uh, more depressing events in my life than you. Well, tell me about them. I want to know. Ah, it's a combination of things, you know. 
Too much stuff starts piling up, you feel trapped. I spend a lot of time talking about all this stuff with my shrinks, so uh, I have a lot of work to do. And Carol, I mean, you really want to be with Paglieri. He was there for me before this happened, when it happened. What we had. Is it worth another chance? You thought what we had didn't work, remember? I know you're in a relationship, but date me also, please. <laughs> like, what a fucking, like... Even though I dumped you? Yeah, even though I dumped you and I'm this person that was completely didn't even go to see you for two months after your suicide attempt. But dump this guy who's been super supportive of you throughout this entire process and date me. Because I'm George Clooney and I'm a tool. He does not come off great here. Nope. Not but we'll see place. how that plays out. Wink, wink. And we get our last final sequence. Mrs. Packer. She's saying her goodbyes and she says, you know, life may be giving up on me, but I'm not giving up on it. She puts her purse stoically on her shoulder and heads out. Yeah, heads off to her christening. She said she'll be back in the morning for the other part of her blood transfusion. Yeah, she just, I I just, I, I've given her, you know, showered her with praise in this so far, but it, she's just so wonderful. And I, I forgot to mention earlier, too, she's another, she's one of the guest stars that we'll see. Again, this is a 25-year-old show. She's one of the guest stars we'll see her and Rosemary Clooney both no longer with us. And both of them are just so underappreciated and so, like, just wonderful. Like, just absolute lights in this episode yeah so this was a really great episode for guest stars i I gotta say no she might have just been talking to susan when she says this because the or she might have just been talking to carol when she says this because then susan runs up and says mark's in trouble no you're no you're right they they susan runs up and says that mark is hurt yeah which i was just like god this is such a like they do this a couple times throughout the show like throughout the run of the show where they'll trick somebody into going to a surprise party by saying one of their friends is hurt and i'm always just like god that's shitty if you pay attention to susan as they're running to go check on mark she's smiling yeah well carol can't see that no but i'm just saying like we as an audience Uh, that's our first yeah it's a tell for us but i don't know it just i don't know it's just weird do you think you could do something a little bit nicer (laughs) but then carol gets into the staff room and everybody's there to give her a heartwarming speech or to get a heartwarming speech from her and celebrate that she's all right and that she's back to work yeah that she's on the mend mentally and that she's made good strides they do like a weird like shutter effect over the party yes like and the flashbacks like it almost looks like a home movie like it's very like a camcorder or like an old school video camera home movie like it's it's kind of cool but it's also kind of like it hurt my eyes it's a little jarring it's a little gimmicky like it kind of it kind of like sticks out compared to everything else so it's kind of and then they do they're doing like slow-mo stuff too and like it's there's just a lot going on there and it's uh i think it a less is more approach might have been the better way to go there yeah it really doesn't work as a whole thing despite the heartwarmingness yeah it's very kind of coming very heartwarming and and very sweet but still weaves in the trauma as well like still kind of brings it full circle from the beginning but uh yeah just kind of stylistically it was a little little bit odd yeah and that's how our episode wraps up and i have to say that this one's probably my favorite so far i know we're only three in but this one probably wins for me the pilot has some great strides but this is where it really starts to feel like 
thematically it's growing into the show that yeah. we you might be right yeah the pilot is it's a roller coaster ride like the pilot yeah. has a lot of stuff going on in it and it's very loud and things are happening and like whatever but I don't feel like there's a ton of resonance in the pilot. Like, I don't feel like there's a ton of stuff that like really stays with you as much as there is in this episode. And it's half the length. Like this is half the length of the pilot. And I feel like you get more long-term emotionality out of this than you did from the pilot. For sure. All right, folks. Well, that about wraps up our episode for today. Uh, Thank you all very much for listening. You can find us at, you can find our show on Twitter at at set the tone er uh you can also find us on facebook at facebook.com slash setting the tone podcast uh, we are also at setting the tone podcast on instagram you can also support us on patreon patreon.com slash setting the tone podcast can help us unlock some bonus shows you can also with your donations and your patronage help us uh, upgrade our equipment just overall improve the all the experience of the show but those bonus shows would include season recap episodes available to all patrons Uh, that once it unlocks and also the next one up after that is a monthly bonus show where we just sort of talk about what's going on in our lives and just sort of check in see where we're at maybe we could call it vitals we've been we've been tossing around some some titles so but you have to unlock it first you have to get to the the 500 patreon tier so (laughs) we appreciate anything you you could contribute our theme music was provided to us by Andrew Edwards of Blue Police Box Music. Daniel, where can folks find you? You can find me on Instagram uh, personally at dan.you.el. Um, you can find me also, I host a pop culture-based podcast called The Popular Court, uh, where we take a different pop culture topic each week and put it through a mock trial of sorts. One of our more recent episodes, by the time this posts, um, will have done a uh, episode on soundtrack songs songs that were either created for or made famous by their appearance on movie soundtracks so we take 10 of the kind of most notable best worst and weirdest that we could find and then we kind of do like a little listening party listen to about a 30 second clip of it and um, try to render a quick verdict on whether it's good or not whether it's held up over time that sort of thing can you tell me tell me one song ask i want to ask if it's in it as don't want to miss a thing off the Armageddon soundtrack on it is not no that one did not make the list I considered that one though like it's we're definitely that's probably of all the music episodes we've done so far that's the one I think that's probably most guaranteed to get a sequel somewhere down the line because we just had so many that we cut for time that I was it's gonna happen so maybe in a future one awesome Uh, Lauren where can folks find you people can find me on twitter at lobob92345 that's L-O-B-O-B. Um, and you can find me personally on Twitter at uh, at RandomGamer, uh, G-A-M-3-R. And yeah, that should about wrap it up for us. Uh, thank you very much for, again, thank you very much again for listening. And we will see you next time. 